important things with you. First, two weeks from today, we are beginning a new series called Home. It's a Christmas series. You know, everyone is searching for home in one way or another, and the only true way to find home is to find Jesus. Now, December 8th is going to be a special day. The kids will be singing on stage, and we're going to do our best to present the gospel in a clear and engaging way. So we've said the first week of this series is very important. This is a time where we really want to reach out and invite people to join us. That's why we've been handing out these Invite Your One toolkits. It's a bag with several resources inside to help you reach out to your one. And, and your one is someone you know who may need a relationship with Jesus. One of the things in that bag is this number one carabiner. And I've seen over the past couple of weeks, this thing works. I've clipped it onto my backpack, and it reminds me to pray for my ones and you can actually have more than one one. It's just whoever God lays on your heart. So if you haven't picked up one of these toolkits yet, you can get one at either exit on your way out today. You can also get extra carabiners. Maybe you have three ones. And these things come in three different colors. So each one could represent a different person. And that would be great. So let's all pray for these people who will be here for the first time on December 8th. Pray that God will do some amazing things. The other thing I needed to share with you are the results of the vote that we had over the past two weeks. We presented plans for a new building. This building would be the home for our student ministry and sharing center. It's an addition that would go right outside over here. And we said that our bylaws require two-thirds approval from our active members in order to move forward on a major building program. And I said that we needed a high level of participation on this vote. And I'm happy to say that over 75% of our active members casted a ballot. And, and I really appreciate that. And then the, the other thing to share is 95% of those who voted said yes to this plan. And that puts us well over the two-thirds needed. So praise God for that. Thank you for your participation. And I'm excited to see this building go up uh, fairly soon, after the first of the year. And, you know, with Thanksgiving this week, I I'm just thankful for a lot of reasons. I'm thankful that God has put us in this position where we can build this new ministry tool and we don't have to go into any more debt. Man, that's a great thing. I'm also thankful for the unity of this congregation. I really appreciate that. And I just wanted to go to God right now and express our thankfulness to him. Let's pray. God, we love you. We are so thankful. There are so many reasons we have to praise you. And, and Lord, I, I do thank you for leading our church. I thank you for the, the group of people here who, who just say yes, that we want to follow wherever you lead. We want to be used by you to reach people, to help people come to know you through a relationship with Jesus. And I know this week, Lord, um, it, it will be common for all kinds of people to have sort of a generic sense of thankfulness, but Lord, we, we don't want to be generic. We want to acknowledge you. We want to give you the credit. We know that every good gift comes from you, so we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Over the past few weeks, we've been saying that Jesus is no ordinary man. But when we say that, we're not just talking about his miracles or even his identity as the Son of God. We're also talking about his words, what he preached and what he taught. People listened to Jesus and they said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. On some days, his words were inspiring and encouraging. But then on other days, the crowds walked away confused or even offended. So you better get ready because we're about to hear the extraordinary teaching of Jesus. I'm going to read a passage that's very familiar to many of you. It's the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This is the introduction to what is probably the most famous sermon in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount. This section we're looking at today is known as the Beatitudes. So follow along with me as we read these verses. Matthew 5, starting with verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs, in, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, the Beatitudes. I don't know what those words mean to you, but as for myself, I have a long history with this passage. The Beatitudes almost always remind me of this memory from my childhood. As I mentioned last week, I grew up as a preacher's kid. And because of that, my upbringing was unique in different ways, but mostly it was, it was good. From day one in our home, my dad made it a habit to sit down with me and my brother every single night to read the Bible and to pray. Occasionally, he'd have us memorize parts of the Bible, and at some point, he decided that we should memorize the Beatitudes. But he took a very creative approach, and I've been impressed with it ever since. Here's what dad did. He said, okay, boys, imagine that you're walking into our house, and as you step into the foyer, you see a ghost, and this ghost is wearing tattered old clothes, but he's also wearing a golden crown. And dad gave us that image as a way to remember the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that ghost represented spirit. And then he was wearing old clothes because he was a poor ghost. And then he had a crown on because that reminded us of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Over 30 years later, and I haven't forgotten that. So then from there, Dad walked us through every room in the house, and each room had another image that would help us remember another one of the Beatitudes. 
And at least for my brother and I, this approach worked very well. And so not long ago, we used the same idea with our kids, and it worked for them too. So that's one memory I have, but I've got to share one more with you. Not long after I graduated from college, my family had this amazing opportunity to travel to Israel, to the Holy Land. The trip was organized by Florida Christian College, where my brother was a student at the time. And our travel group included lots of preachers and professors from the college, which was really cool because wherever we went, one of them would explain to us the sites that we were seeing, kind of fill in details and history. But one day, uh, our group stopped on the north, north shore of the Sea of Galilee, probably very close to where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And my dad had this great idea. Since we were in this historic place, and this place with a connection to Jesus, dad told everyone that I could stand up and recite the Beatitudes for everybody. <laughs> I kind of put my head down like, ah, thanks a lot, dad. But I didn't want to disappoint him, so I gave it a shot. It did not go well. You know, I was kind of nervous. I fumbled through the whole thing, and every time I got stuck, those preachers and professors were happy to fill in the blanks for me. So like I said, I've got some history with this passage, but here's the interesting thing. For years and years, I had the Beatitudes in my head, but I wasn't sure how they applied to my life. What am I supposed to do with the Beatitudes? How should I respond to these verses? I didn't quite know exactly. And what would you say? Do you have an answer to that? It's okay if you don't, because a lot of people have struggled with this over the years. Now, some Bible scholars came to the conclusion that the Beatitudes are kind of a new version of the Ten Commandments. Jesus gave us this new law, and if you want to follow him, this is your to-do list. So is that right? If that is the case, there are some curious things on this list. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. That's kind of the opposite of how we talk, isn't it? Here in the U.S., we, we have the freedom to worship however we choose. And we thank God for that. We say that God has blessed us precisely because we are not persecuted. And listen, it's absolutely true. The freedom to worship is a blessing from God. But is being persecuted also a blessing? That's kind of strange, isn't it? And again, what are we supposed to do with that statement? Should I go look for persecution so I can get a greater blessing? There are a lot of things to wrestle with in the Beatitudes. And remember, this is just the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is just getting started. You go a little deeper into the sermon and things get even more challenging. After this introduction, Jesus goes through all of these instructions about how, how to live, and, and what he says flies right in the face of what seems normal and natural to us. For example, later in Matthew 5, Jesus says, you have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, a lot of people have been inspired by this teaching. Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. adopted a philosophy of nonviolent resistance because of what Jesus says here. But seriously, 
how many people actually live this out? Do you know anyone who says, yeah, do whatever you want to me. I'll just take it. I won't retaliate. I won't make you pay for what you've done. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? But there's a lot that's extreme in the Sermon on the Mount. Skip down to verse 43, and Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, it's one thing for Jesus to say, Don't hate your enemies. And I could understand if he told us just to walk away and not seek revenge. But this is something else. Love your enemies? I'm supposed to look into the eyes of someone who wants to harm me or harm my family and then respond with love and a prayer that God will bless that person? Is Jesus serious here? Well, this is what's tough about the Sermon on the Mount. It starts with the Beatitudes and it continues all the way through. Jesus lays out this standard that feels impossible to reach. And the reality is, no one has ever lived up to this standard apart from Jesus himself. There's always a gap between the teaching of Jesus and the way we actually live. So before we move on, we have to deal with this gap. Our stance on this issue will determine how we interpret and apply this whole sermon. So here's the question. How do I deal with the gap between my life and what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount? And to answer that question, let's, let's try to figure out the purpose of this sermon. Why did Jesus say these things? Well, I've already mentioned one possibility. Maybe this sermon is one big to-do list. Jesus says, I've got a bunch of commands for you to follow, and I know that you're going to fail miserably, but go try anyway. Well, let's take that idea and run with it for a second. If I see the Sermon on the Mount as a long to-do list, it's very likely that I'll respond in one of two ways. On the one hand, I can slide into self-hatred. And that may sound like an exaggeration, but I'm not exaggerating at all. If you take this teaching seriously and you believe that God will grade you based on your performance, it's actually terrifying because you know you'll never be able to pass that test. None of us can. So look at the level of difficulty here. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus says, if you are overly angry, if you call someone a fool, then it's like you're committing murder and you are in danger of the fires of hell. And a few verses later, he says, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, it's like he's already committed adultery with her. And I get what Jesus is saying here. Murder and adultery are wrong. Yeah. But hatred and lust are the inner thoughts that lead to those outward actions. So then those thoughts are wrong too. But come on now. It's hard enough to control your actions. How do you get to the place where you control every single thought? Like I said, we're all going to fail. In this life, that gap will always be there. And if you focus on your failure in an unhealthy way, you really can spiral into self-hatred. But not everyone chooses that option. Another approach is to look at that impossible to-do list and and just slide into self-satisfaction. That's when you say to yourself, 
There's no way I can live up to that standard. I'm not even sure I want to. So I'll just be content right where I am. I'll just ignore that gap. And hopefully God will cut me some slack. After all, he made me this way. He knows that I'm just doing what comes naturally. Some people do live like that. But if that's you, you're not taking Jesus seriously at all. You might as well throw this sermon out the window. So where does that leave us? Well, I think we can agree that God doesn't want us to hate ourselves. We can also agree that God doesn't want us to ignore this teaching just because it's hard. But is there another option? How can you look at this sermon as anything but a list of rules? I mean, through the whole thing, Jesus says, do this, but don't do that. Well, there is another option. I'm not sure I would have come up with this on my own, but I've learned to take a different view of the Sermon on the Mount. I've learned from several Bible teachers who do take Jesus very seriously, but not in a way that leads to despair. These teachers remind us that throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there's a big theme. The theme is the kingdom of God. Jesus came into this world to inaugurate a kingdom where God reigns and evil is destroyed. And this kingdom will continue for all of eternity. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes what life is like in God's kingdom. He tells us what it looks like to be a citizen in this kingdom. Now, some of this description is a little jarring because God's kingdom is very different than the kingdoms of this world. We might even say that God's kingdom is upside down compared to what we're used to. But if we read this sermon from the perspective that Jesus is describing life in the kingdom of God, the whole thing sounds totally different. Jesus doesn't give us a standard that we have to achieve in order to enter this kingdom. He he gives us a description, a picture of who we become after we've entered the kingdom. We, We said it many times, you don't enter God's kingdom by being good enough, by trying hard. You only get in by giving your life to Jesus accepting the forgiveness and the salvation that he made possible when he went to the cross and he paid the price for your sins. And then, once you've established that relationship, from that point on, Jesus changes you to be more like him. You start to resemble this description of a citizen in God's kingdom, which is really a a description of Jesus himself. So there's no place for self-hatred, but there's also no place for self-satisfaction. If the Sermon on the Mount describes what it's like to be a citizen in God's kingdom, I can rest. I can rest in God's grace because of what Jesus has done. The sacrifice of Jesus proves that God does love me, and that makes me love him in return, which then leads me to another step. I can show my love for him by closing that gap through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the pattern. Enter the kingdom And be transformed, not by your own effort, but by the power of God's Spirit working in you. So now that we have that foundation in place, we can go back and take a closer look at the Beatitudes. Each one of these statements begins with the word blessed. Or if you're a fan of the King James Bible, you might say blessed. But what does it mean to be blessed? Well, the original Greek word here could also be defined as happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn, and so on. But that word may be misleading 
because of the way we think about happiness these days. In our culture, happiness is something that depends on your circumstances. It's about having enough money, having great relationships, being healthy, stuff like that. Years ago, when Michael Jordan retired from the NBA the first time, Jerry Reinsdorf, owner of the Chicago Bulls, said that Jordan was living the American dream. And then he defined that dream. He said, the American dream is to reach a point in your life when you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. And you can do everything that you do want to do. But that's definitely not the dream of Jesus. Jesus has a different definition of happiness. It's being deeply satisfied despite your circumstances. That's why it's not crazy when he says blessed or happy are those who mourn. Jesus is talking about a person who is deeply satisfied in God, even though there are some very good reasons to be sad. So as we read through the Beatitudes, let's remember that. When you're blessed, you are deeply satisfied. And let's also remember that Jesus is describing what it's like to be a citizen in God's kingdom. So let's jump back to Matthew 5.3. In that verse, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you will be blessed or happy or deeply satisfied when you are poor in spirit. Of course, the next thing we have to ask is, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's not a a very difficult concept, really. In fact, we touched on this last week. We read the story where Jesus sits down and he eats dinner with a bunch of sinners. And then the Pharisees see that and they're like, what is Jesus doing here? Why is he hanging out with these losers? And do you remember what Jesus said? In Mark 2, 17, he said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In that statement, Jesus refers to the fact that everyone has this spiritual sickness, this tendency toward sin and rebellion against God. And the only way to get help is to say, I admit it, I am one of the sick. So here in Mark chapter 2, Jesus speaks in medical terms. But back over in Matthew 5, 3, it's the same idea, but Jesus uses economic terms. To be poor in spirit means that you are spiritually bankrupt. You have this huge debt to pay, but there's nothing in your account. So you are completely dependent on God to save you. Now, many of us don't like that feeling of dependency. We like to be self-sufficient. We don't like to ask for help. I had a moment like this a few days ago. Over at Plum Creek South, we've been cleaning out some of the rooms that we're not using anymore, and we've been throwing a lot of stuff into a big dumpster. And when I was going through my old office, I found this box of file folders that go way back, about 20 or 25 years. And my wife will tell you, it is hard for me to throw anything away. But even I knew that I didn't need the folders in this box. I don't need the uh, board meeting notes from 1995. So I picked up this big box, and I carried it down to the dumpster. And this dumpster is tall. It's about seven or eight feet high. And Tony and Dylan weren't too far away, but I just didn't want to ask for help. I wanted to handle this myself. So I decided I'm probably strong enough to throw this box into that dumpster. I, I, uh sort of summoned up some man strength 
And I threw that box as high as I could. And you know exactly what happened, right? It hit the top edge of the dumpster, flipped upside down, and then it was raining paper all around me. It was kind of pretty, actually. It was also kind of embarrassing. And you know, this is exactly what happens when we refuse to admit that we are spiritually bankrupt. You know, with me, I I was just being prideful. And because of that, I refused to get the help that I needed. And with God, so many times we like to pretend that we can handle things ourselves, but at some point we have to come to this realization and say, I can't. I can't do it. I can't fix my life. I can't overcome this temptation. I can't repair this marriage or this relationship. I can't get away from the bad decisions that I've made. So I give up. I need you, Jesus. And the great news is, as long as you are willing to admit that you are desperate for God, he's always ready to welcome you into his kingdom. So this is our first description of what it's like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. That citizen says, all the way through this life, I never forget that without Jesus, I am spiritually bankrupt. But let's keep reading. Matthew 5, verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. According to Jesus, we can be deeply satisfied even when we're in the middle of a time of mourning. So let's take this into the real world. Sooner or later, everyone finds a reason to mourn and to grieve. Maybe you've lost something that was really important to you, or you've lost someone who was precious to you. Or maybe you just look out at the world and you see all the suffering and the injustice, and it's overwhelming. It is enough to make you cry. And you know what? Jesus did exactly that. At the death of his friend Lazarus, Jesus wept. Because death is unnatural. It's not something that God wants for us. But Jesus came to solve that problem. You know, when, when we know Christ, he's given us the promise that death will be eliminated forever. So that's comforting already. But Jesus also mourned on another occasion when he stood on a hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And he looked down at the people And he expressed grief over the fact that so many of them were unwilling to repent, to turn away from their selfishness and turn to God instead. He mourned over the sins of the people. And you know what? I believe that's a big part of what this verse is talking about. How often do we weep over our own sin? How often do we realize what a serious thing it is to to violate the perfect will of a holy God? How often do we realize the punishment that we really deserve because of our sin? I'm not talking about self-hatred. I'm talking about an appropriate mourning. We don't need to hate ourselves because God doesn't hate us. He loves us in spite of our sin. But in the church today, we need to go back and remember what the Bible calls godly sorrow. That's a good thing. Godly sorrow leads us to repentance. Repentance leads us to God. And then God gives us comfort. Through Jesus, he wipes away the sins of the past and he gives us the hope of eternal life. But while we are in this life, yeah, we still have reasons to mourn. 
So here's what you would expect to hear from a citizen of God's kingdom. That person says, I shed actual tears over this broken world, including the sin in my own life. If we're not mourning like that, we haven't arrived yet. Okay, we need to move on. I'm going to read the next four Beatitudes all together, Matthew 5, starting with verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In these four verses, we have a vivid description of Jesus himself. To be meek is not to be weak. Jesus had incredible strength, but he chose to be in submission. He submitted to the will of his heavenly Father, even when that meant choosing death. So true meekness is finding strength in complete submission to God. Jesus was also full of mercy. Mercy is when someone deserves punishment, but you decide to let them off the hook. You give the person a pass when they don't deserve a pass. Think about what Jesus said on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And at that point, those people had not even asked for forgiveness. That level of mercy is mind-boggling. But it sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like loving your enemies or turning the other cheek. You see, Jesus never asks us to do something that he's not willing to do himself. And then verse 8 reminds us that Jesus had a pure heart, completely pure. He was never two-faced or duplicitous. He was the same person everywhere he went, with his friends or with his enemies or when he was all alone. He was always 100% good, pure righteousness. So the question is, how much do we want to be like Jesus? How much do we hunger and thirst to reach his level of goodness and righteousness. A citizen of God's kingdom has a deep longing to grow into the image of Christ. That citizen says, my desire to become more like Jesus is never satisfied. There's a constant yearning to close that gap. And God says, even though you have that continual hunger, you'll eventually be filled. And in the meantime you can still be deeply satisfied. That may seem contradictory, but it's true. So let's read those final few Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, we often wish for a comfortable life, but Jesus never promised that. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. And in these verses, a citizen of God's kingdom is described in two ways. First, that person is a peacemaker. A peacemaker takes an active role in reconciliation between people. But a 
peacemaker also leads people to be reconciled to God. In fact, God calls all Christians to share this message of reconciliation. But you know what? Not everybody wants to hear that message. Not everyone believes it. Not everyone accepts it. And when Jesus preached that message, they killed him for it. And when we follow his example, we may very well be persecuted ourselves. But here in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, it's okay. When you are persecuted because of me, you are actually blessed. So is that really true? Is it possible to be deeply satisfied while you are being persecuted? As we sit here in this country enjoying our freedom, I'm not sure we're in the best position to answer that question. But we can learn a lot by listening to brothers and sisters who live in one of the 60 countries where Christians deal with severe persecution on a regular basis. Dale talked about what some of those people go through. There's a ministry called Open Doors that has ongoing communication with these persecuted Christians. And I heard something very interesting from this ministry. I'm going to read you a quote. They said, It's counterintuitive, but believers in the persecuted church around the world often don't wish for their trials to end. That's kind of shocking. (laughs) These Christians do ask for prayer, they said, but they don't ask us to pray that they'll be removed from persecution. Time and again, these believers tell us that persecution builds the church and their witness. So yes, these believers They do see God's blessing in the midst of that suffering. They've seen the Beatitudes come to life. And I am so inspired by their example for lots of reasons. One reason is that it it shows us we really can take on these characteristics here and now in this life. We're not there yet, but we can grow in that direction through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can bring us to the point where we say, I follow the commands of Jesus even when obeying makes me very afraid, even when there's a price to pay, even though obeying may bring pain, suffering, persecution. Are we ready to say that? Well, that's a a quick summary, but the Beatitudes are a powerful description of what it's like to live in God's kingdom. It's a life of deep blessing, deep happiness, deep satisfaction. But before we finish here, I want to ask you, does that description sound attractive to you? Does that sound like something you want? Do you find yourself wanting to be spiritually poor, to be in a state of continual mourning, to grow into the image of Jesus so much that you end up being persecuted? If I had to guess, I'd say that many of us are still attracted to that American dream We still like the idea of doing what we want to do and not doing anything we don't want to do. But if we find ourselves drawn to that version of happiness, we still don't get it. We don't understand what Jesus is teaching. I was reading a Christian author named Philip Yancey, and he shared a fascinating observation. He said, as a journalist, he's had the opportunity to meet and interview lots of well-known celebrities— the idols of our culture. These are people with wealth or fame or great achievements or all of the above. And if anybody's reached the American dream, it would be them, right? But Yancey said, those idols, they were about as miserable a group of people that you could ever meet. He said, 
these larger-than-life heroes didn't seem blessed. They seemed tormented. But then Philip Yancey also spent time with a very different group of people. He calls them the servants. These servants are people like doctors and nurses who work with leprosy patients in rural India. There are people like uh, the relief workers in Somalia and Sudan, or PhDs who live in the jungles of South America, translating the Bible into obscure languages. And I want to read you this quote from Yancey. He said, I was prepared to honor and admire these servants, to hold them up as inspiring examples. I was not prepared to envy them. It's ironic, isn't it? Those servants, the the people who take on these characteristics that we see in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, they end up being the favored ones, the ones who are blessed, the ones who are, are attractive to us because they look like Jesus and we're attracted to Jesus. Somehow, in losing their lives, they find them. So the evidence is all around us. The teaching of Jesus is challenging, no doubt about it. But it's also true. He really does show, it, show us what it looks like to be blessed. Life in the kingdom of God is not only a promise for a blessed future. It's also the way to be blessed here and now. And if you believe that, it's time to go back to my original question. What are we supposed to do with the Beatitudes? How should we respond? Well, if you are already a part of this kingdom, you can rest in God's grace And then keep closing that gap through the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you haven't yet entered this kingdom through a relationship with Jesus, that's how you need to respond. Don't wait until you feel like you're good enough. The whole point is you're not good enough. None of us are. It's what being poor in spirit is about. You admit that you're spiritually bankrupt and then you give yourself completely over to Jesus. And then you learn by personal experience, what it's like to live the blessed life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this sermon. I thank you for the teaching of Jesus and how we are so challenged by that. Lord, I also thank you that uh, we don't have to depend on our performance to be accepted by you. I thank you that Jesus made a way for us to be accepted despite our failure. But Lord, we also uh, don't want to be self-satisfied. We want to grow into this description, and we need your help to do that. So Lord, would you fill us with your love, this radical love that we're reading about in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we read through this description, Lord, give us the, the longing and the desire to match that definition, to, to, to become this citizen in your kingdom. I know that that's the kind of life that is blessed. That's the kind of life that brings you glory. So I pray that you'll do this in us, in Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we're gonna sing one more song. But if you're here today and you know you haven't begun that relationship with Jesus. You haven't entered God's kingdom because you haven't accepted this gift of salvation. You haven't put your faith in Jesus. You haven't surrendered to him. 
and you don't remember a, a specific point in your life where you said, I'm, I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I'm, I'm laying down my own right to, to rule, to, to reign in my own life. And then you repent, you turn away from that sinful past, and you confess Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. You're baptized into Christ, and then you live this new blessed life, a life that's blessed here in the present, but also for eternity. If you know you need to do that, I'm going to be down at the front of the stage here. I'd be glad to meet you. As soon as we dismiss, I invite you to come, and I'd be glad to talk with you there or pray with you. We'll have a prayer team down front as well. We'd be glad to pray with you for any reason. Let's stand and sing. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. 